So when I first read a review of The Master and His Emissary, I think it was the one in The Guardian, I think it was Mary Midgley. It was probably. And it was such, yeah. it was such a moving piece of writing. I mean, I would always in those days read all the book reviews anyway. But then I had to literally go out and run to Waterstones and get the book. And I came back with it and hold up for a whole weekend. And then evangelically running to Tai Chi class on the Tuesday night saying, your mum's arm. <laughs> we have terminology for when the students don't even know that they've gone like this in your face, but they deny all knowledge of having <laughs> lashed out at that moment. And we had finally Western terminology for things that we knew to be happening from decades of Tai Chi experience, but no way other than very obscure, wonderful Chinese terms or to point to them and to talk about these things with the students. And your book comes along and despite it being well, on top of it being a kind of a life-changing book read for me, it actually fed into a school of between 30 and 50 people on their day-to-day -day work. The thing that they were really, uh, that it was an enrichment of their life to be doing the Tai Chi. And now we had a way to talk about it together. And there's moments when we're even doing it, going, oh yeah, your mum's arm, or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, I completely denied the fact that that was real. And... <laughs> To go straight into an embodied practice mm. from a book of words mm. <laughs> was a delight because mm. normally that only happens with the Tai Chi classics and the Taoist classics. So I remember you teasing me about not teasing me about it, but you know, going, "It's been mum's arm," yeah. you know? <laughs> which uh, perhaps I should just should explain, explain that. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> that patients sometimes after a right hemisphere stroke disown a paralyzed limb their left arm and when asked what it is they deny any ownership of it and one of the patients that i quoted in the master's episode it belongs to my mother and, uh, the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and teaching tai chi and practicing tai chi especially because ours is a martial art and we are pushing hands which if people don't know that is a partner work where you're very close and you're mm. right in each other's face quite mm -hmm. literally and you cannot get away from that relationship and the pushes that come are not up to you. How you respond is not always, but usually very closely aligned to where you are at, where you are at in your culture, in your life, in your body that day, in the moments in your, of experience, the mood that you're in, all of them inflect what happens. So you could have, well, I could have 15 years training and still that day when I'm agitated, lash out, then the person will go, oh, and you're completely denying that you've done it because it's very much unconscious. Mm. But through the, the joy of having a practice to work with is that you cannot then deny it. So the other person is there too saying, you just did that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And after the sick feeling has risen and abated, you can then work on it. Yes, yes. And the richness that your terminology and writing down for a lay person such as myself the research mm. meant that we could start to form some useful correlations because when you push hands for 10 minutes you've probably pushed a couple of hundred times right. so it's a very repeatable experiment mm. when someone's quality of touch changes under your hands over minutes hours weeks or years it has changed mm -hmm. and it is measurably so mm -hmm. And then when you came to Tai Chi, that, uh, what was that, 2014, I think you came it to a summer workshop. Yeah. 
and you felt the the sticking hands that we did. Yes. How did that feel to you? It was fascinating. I mean, I loved conceiving this in a completely new way for me, which was to think of it in terms of unconscious bodily movement. And the fact that you saw these bridges was, was remarkable. I hadn't anticipated that, of course. But um, I remember thinking, this is, this is very interesting and I must, must carry on with this. But then I live on an island where I, I don't know that there's a Tai Chi class going on, <laughs> maybe, but unknown to me. Mm. Mm. But there's a sense, so in the classics there is a line, the Tai Chi classic says, at first you must follow the other, mm -hmm. later you may do as you wish. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it translates better as, at first you must follow the other, later you can follow your heart's desire. Mm. And that's sin, mm. heart, mind, not mm. the bloody heart of like willfulness. No, no. At first when we're training this quality of attention, connection, allowing, which we call yielding, allowing the other person to be as they are, allowing the catastrophe of modernity to be as it is, allowing my annoying friends to be as they are, mm -hmm. um, requires a massive change of heart in us. Mm -hmm. So that itself is mm -hmm. decades work. But once you are in connection, there's, you have to follow the other person. Mm -hmm. If you touch my hand and push me, and I resist you, we are at war, mm. immediately, mm. whatever I say about it. Mm. There's mm. So if you do that again and I allow it and you push, we're not at war. It mm. just takes one of us to decide it's a relationship, not at war. Yes. So that's probably the first thing I had to learn. Yes. There was following the other at first, it's like eating bitter. It's, um, What's one of the other phrases we would say? Small loss, small gain. If I really only follow you a bit, yes. I don't get much advantage, yes. I don't learn much. No, but no. if I truly yes. allow you to move me, yes. whether that's with your writing or your movement or your yes. push, yes. all of you spills out yes. and you fall into an emptiness. I think that seems intuitively right because it's it's the idea of something flowing, which is when you block it or break it, it's, it's not going to work. So you need to be able to, what's brilliant, I think, in these arts that you practice is that um, you don't have to give up anything of you in this process. It, it enriches you and it enriches the other person. So it's, a, it, it's something that is, is positive, but it sounds rather like it might be um, negative or in, in, yes but pushing back against something the urge with things in the world is because they're mainly resistant materials yeah. doors rocks mm. you know everything gives pushes back mm. is that we feel that relationships should be that way mm -hmm. and that if you assert yourself in a certain way then all will be well mm. but it's not necessarily true and being a blank, uh, being a, a doormat or being a leaf in the wind is also no good. Exactly. So just go, people often say, Taoism yeah. is so misunderstood and it's often, oh, well, you just go with the flow. Oh, great, go with the flow, down to sea, crack your head on a rock, goodbye. It's not. <laughs> no, no. It's more like the salmon swimming upstream. Yes. You have to spawn, you have to go upstream. Yes. But if you go right up the middle of the river, bashing against the current, yes. you'll be exhausted and washed out to sea and you won't have fulfilled your destiny. Yes. And the, the trick is to go up the eddies, up the side, to find, by listening with your whole body, yes. the, the places where you can slip in. Yes. And these senses 
are difficult to hone. Interestingly, that idea of the movement that isn't willed but achieves something is is true of, of flow in a, in a stream. There are examples of dead fish that actually go upstream against the current because their bodies are so aligned that they can use the turbulence in, in water, which there always is in moving water, to aid their passage. The reason that they can, salmon can jump upwards is not that they're, you know, they're amazing athletes. It's, it's funny that they use the upward movement that also accompanies the downward movement of the water. There is an upward movement that compensates and they get into that. And so in a stream, there are always these movements where you could be going with the flow but that doesn't mean you're going necessarily the same way the stream would take you. Mm. And you're allowing a part of the stream to take you another way. So it's not as simple as it sounds. It Just isn't. as undoing, or sorry, not doing, is not the same as doing nothing. Is it? Oh, no. Doing nothing is simply a negation. Yeah, only we could just drink tea and do nothing and everything remains dark. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So the, the eddies in a river are the perfect. Mm. For me, the perfect example of so many things, both with Wei, both with, and with Tai Chi, but also in life. Because if you look at only the eddy and cut it off and get yourself a nice little Oxbow Lake or something, well, you've immediately got a dead pond. Nothing actually happening. No, no. So first of all, the eddies must remain part of the living system of the stream. Mm. They're very difficult to look at because, of course, it's fractal. Yes. And, and at once it's always changing. Um, but that's where the life is. Yes, um, yes. To go wider, I think that why your book landed so well with the school and the wonderful people in my teacher school and in my school in those days was we were all attempting to not cut ourselves off from the stream and allow the Tai Chi to influence our lives in a way that made things better because, well, relationships, family, they're tricky. <laughs> and when you've worked on something fastidiously for months uh, with a partner pushing you in good faith and in goodwill mm. and always trying to make things a little bit harder just enough so that you had a challenge mm. it's a really good place to practice mm. being in the flow of things when you go back home at christmas with the in-laws or mm. you, the yes. same pushes will come but they might be yes. coming out of someone's mouth yes very good and a degree of resistance is not the same as you can be just merely obstructive, mm. but there is a kind of resistance which is actually facilitative. Mm -hmm. One of the themes of my work is that nothing happens, nothing is created without resistance. And that matter actually is the element in the cosmos that offers that degree of both permanence and resistance that wouldn't be there if there were no matter. Absolutely. So, yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> For me, that sense of well, friction making movement possible is, mm. the, is one of the matters yes. of matter. Yes. And the non-resistance that we aspire to in my style, because Dr. Chi, our, our great grandmaster, was such a profound yielder, being such a slender and gentle man, it looks like no martial effect is happening. Mm. But what happens is you're constantly in connection. Mm. And no matter what comes towards you, you don't flee that connection. After a while, if you can remain in what we would call central earth, which in English you could say remain in your integrity, i.e. keep your uprightness. Yes. You move your feet to be in a better place. You don't doggedly hold on to the mm. land you're standing on. Mm. You allow yourself to be moved. Yes. And what happens is 
nobody then is pushed over. You're just still there in connection, yeah. just millimetres out of reach of anything landing and hurting, right. but still present. And it isn't about dominating someone no. else or winning. No. It's about staying in connection. So that what is happening is coming out of a twosome, out of a relationship. It's not coming from the will of a person. Precisely. Um, which is uh, an unusual thought for a lot of Western people. Yeah. It? Well, I think that John Kells, my grandmaster, put that as uh, not two. Yes. For a while he was saying, well, it's not just one and it's, um, it's not just me and you. Mm. And while we're working, he was trying to find ways to describe this mm. third heart, this thing that comes into yes. to being between any two living entities. Yes. And by living, I also mean the mountains or... Well, I was going to say, not even living necessarily no. in the conventional no, well, sense. Yes. I, ah, I realise, I think of living as mm. beyond what is just well, alive. <laughs> but yes, yes I've yes. outed myself as an animist, I realise. Yes, I mean, in, in the matter of things, I argue that um, inanimacy is the limit case of animacy, not animacy a special case of inanimacy. Absolutely. Um, which is a point first made by the biological philosopher Robert Rosen, but... Um, but anyway, yes, um, that, that, what you're describing is probably what I call betweenness, which is not is misunderstood by some people as, as, uh, as it were, being something that exists in a space between two things or two people, yeah. but is what happens when two people are in a relationship and they're taken up into something which has both of them and the space between and something new that arises out of it. So yes. it's, um, it's, a, it's a dialectical process, really. John would call that the third heart. And I yes, think, you know, well, the, seasonal, yeah. the, do you know Newgrange, the Irish, the wonderful uh, ancient Irish site? Oh, yes, yes. So, you know, the spiral um, petroglyphs that yes, are there. Yes. There's one that, there's many, that are three spirals. And he always, because he was Irish, he always adopted that. Oh, and his name was Kells. He adopted, <laughs> he adopted that as his pseudo-illustration of what the third heart is like. There's the, the living vortex of your own person. But the minute we're in connection, which is always happening before we think it is, yes. the third heart or the betweenness or the thing between is born. Mm. And mm. It, it has the qualities of us, mm. but it also has the qualities of the attention that we bring to it. So it can, for instance, wither. Exactly. Or exactly. fade or break. Yes. So the disposition of each person is vital to this process. But what happens when you're training somebody who hasn't, as it were, yet achieved a sense of how this relationship works? How do you help them to feel it? Because in a way that would be an analogy for the situation we find ourselves in more widely in society now that we need to help people see how the... It's not the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere, but the two of them working in harmony, which means the left in service to the right. So we need to help people understand how that works and how to achieve that. And maybe there's an analogy in trying to take a novice who is presumably a mindset is not yet accepting or understanding what it is you're trying to impart. Mm. How do you do that? Luckily, Chuang Tzu, <laughs> Tzu had the answer. With in, in, He writes about it so well, for instance, in The Cook and His Cleaver, that the, yes. you have to have a... You need to, what we would call, I suppose, using the false to cultivate the real, 
you need a false thing. So it's a thing yeah. to hang it on. Yes. So when people come and pay my teacher or myself for Tai Chi, yes. they can they will learn during that term, you know, the short form or whatever. Yes. They go away and their folding money was spent on a thing that they can point at. Yes. Yes. Meanwhile, for free, underneath, <laughs> because you can't you mustn't charge for these things. Yeah. Um the other understanding that we're talking about, the ineffable thing, either does or does not transmit. Yes. So that's about transmission. And that can happen immediately, gradually, or not at all. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but because that's not what we overtly offer, yes. and I guess you blow it all by talking about it on the internet, but <laughs> it's part of my teaching in anything, whether it's the mater art materials or whatever yes. it is I'm teaching. Yes. The heart of the a heart of a great matter can't be told. Exactly. Well, apart from by you in your books, <laughs> but then you pay a price for this mm. in the energy that it takes to manifest it mm. into a form. Mm. We have a traditional and old sleight of hand, which is in all the Tao's, whether in China or Japan that I know of, and in Korea, where you have another art which ostensibly you're studying. Mm. So it could be your ikebana or your sword, your calligraphy, your yes. Zen garden. And you absolutely apply yourself yes, to it. Yes, yes. Meanwhile, if you yes. have a good teacher and you're lucky, the underneath teaching of the working with things, yes. the way of things, yes. the wu way of things, yes. manifests. Yes. And, yes. You, and you can't be told it. No. Then one day your teacher can point. Because yes. for ages you're just going, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And your teacher goes, yes, that. What? I didn't do anything. <laughs> and after five years of pointing at you going, but I didn't do anything, which yeah. is when the right hemisphere is in control of what you're doing and you don't know what you're doing. You're doing, yes, yes. You get a sense, finally, of, of the nothing that is, yes. of this thing they point to, this kind of yes. incredible lacuna, where you also are, but it's not the you that you thought you were. thought it was, yes. <laughs> this reminds me slightly, I, I don't know whether appropriately, of um, T.S. Eliot's remark that the meaning of a poem is the meat that the burglar tosses to the dog while he burgles the house. In other words, you focus the person on specifically something and that enables something else to go on out of sight, but it's the out of sightness that matters. Ah, this is so difficult to talk about the thing that we want to remain out of sight, exactly. but that we want people to partake in. And I, we talked about this earlier, but yeah, you know, I was saying that my message is that the implicit matters so much and yet what I'm doing in my work is is trying to explain in a more explicit way what it is and why that is important and that I'm somehow undoing the very thing I believe in. No, but you're not because it returns. It returns to the hidden realm. It's that right to left and back to right. Yes. There's a, there's a role for that explicitness but it has to be taken up by the reader and taken back into their life and absorbed, which is why when they say, so what do I do? Mm. It's so very difficult because I could spin the story about what they might do. Mm. Maybe by concentrating on that, the other stuff would happen. Well, that would be like, the self-help book version yeah, of all the things you write. Which I don't write, want to write. Which you don't want to write, no. and which other people will be doing, <laughs> trying to put your things into practice and, well, try this thing, mm. and that's fine. And that's, this is fine. That's yes. part of well, I the... know some therapists do, which is great. Yeah, yeah. and that's how things... They take things up and run with them, that's fine. Absolutely, but the thing that we're pointing at is also like the body decomposing after death. Mm. It's the bit that loads of people don't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. People like, I mean, 
Charlotte Duquesne certainly talks about it, and then Sophie Strand does about, I want to be good compost. Mm. And <laughs> there is an aspect where you have to hold the recombination of things will mean the end of you. But of course it doesn't mean the end. Like mm. the, the world that comes after modernity isn't the end of the world. Yes. My, or my, uh, this organism will make very good compost. I've been eating very nice food recently. <laughs> and apart from a few little lumps of metal, um, which are not too harmful, should degrade nicely into very good food for trees. And mm -hmm. I think some of my Christian friends find that distressing, that, that there's no salvation for that. But the recombining of all the parts for me is joyful. The returning of either knowledge back to the darkness where it has to become unconscious, or me back into the darkness of the soil, holds no Fear is the wrong word. It's it's not like I'm looking forward to it tomorrow. I'd quite like to hang around a bit longer and have some more conversations. But there's the darkness isn't the place that's the problem. No, the problem is mainly in the glaring light. Absolutely. Yes, I mean that's that's an important insight that actually we often see less when there is a glare of a light. Uh, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day who was saying, you know, if, if there was a, a three, three million watt light bulb in the room, you wouldn't be able to see anything. <laughs> if there was no light in the room, you wouldn't be able to see anything. But if there's a small light in the room, you start to see everything. And Urban Chargap has this image of uh, a flashlight that if you turn it on the world, you see the lumber room that is around you, but you don't see anything beyond. Whereas if you switch it off, then you see the stars infinitely large and extensive beyond. So darkness has its place as well as, as light. Um, and I suppose that my view on you know the decomposition, not just of the body, I suppose, but also of the uh, of of my mind, um, is that it, it's not lost because. It's like the, the whirlpool in the stream. The whirlpool is not an alien thing in that stream. Mm. It is the stream for that moment at that point. Yes, it and, is and, streaming. And, and, yes, and you and I are streaming whatever is in the whirlpool that is us now. But when we go, whatever that was that was there is not lost. It no. will move on. And my view is that perhaps unlike the water, but some people would say not unlike the water, actually. Um, it contains traces of the experience it has had. And so whatever it is that is us is not lost. No. Although I don't want, personally, to be trapped as me forever. Yeah. That would be, for me, a great loss. <laughs> and um, I'd quite like to be liberated to something beyond and bigger. Mm. The return requires a massive shift of context. So just as in every yield that I've had to make to a push I didn't want to receive, whether that was in life or some big bloke pushing me in Hamburg at a push hands conference, every time I expand my con context bigger than the, the hurt at that moment, it, I'm immediately liberated. My energy is returned to a greater flow of energy. My mind relaxes because it hasn't tightened around the, not the good sense of the present moment, but the apparent, mm. sort of apparent 
present moment which is problematic mm -hmm. and as soon as I relax that which is one the the relaxation response which is well known as a mm -hmm. way to you know get over a phobia or something as well as my body relaxing my energy relaxes and my mind relaxes and moves towards freedom that were not possible the split second before mm -hmm. were suddenly are suddenly now possible because I have massively increased the context mm. suddenly a tiny movement in myself whatever that is changes the relationship mm -hmm. and a punch that was going to land and hurt suddenly massively falls past me and the person stumbles into emptiness mm. looking annoyed <laughs> <laughs> and a joke happens and it's mm. and the movement the moment moves on but when i contract around the moment mm. whether that's the moment of my whole life or the moment of a unkind word mm. on the street nothing seems possible yeah. and no moves can be made which is where letting go is an increase not a decrease it's so important and again from a point of view of the hemispheric balance um, what you say about context is as you know very well it's the right hemisphere that is attentive to context the left hemisphere tends to see everything in, it, in its decontextualized form which is one of the reasons it doesn't understand anything, because <laughs> what it is only comes from its context. Um, but that, that process of um, focusing on some hurt or uh, some perceived slight or something like that, and not only uses up a lot of un unnecessary energy um, and makes you unhappy, not the other person, mm. but it also causes um, the left hemisphere to focus down more tightly because when you're anxious about something, whatever it may be, when you're stressed or anxious, your body can go into a spasm, but your mind can go into a spasm. And what happens is that the left hemisphere focuses down on something using concentric, tightly organized networks to, to sort of home in on this target. But often the answer is going to be outside of that and needs more context. So it's only later when you can relax that spasm of attention that the right hemisphere can come in and see the poetry, see the joke, see the meaning. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very real phenomenon. And of course, it's the explanation of the tip of the tongue phenomenon. When you can't remember something and the harder you try, the less you remember it. But a minute later, when you're doing something else, you go, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> there are about 10,000 analogies and experiences from Tai that are just exactly what Good. you said that I, I could draw on. But I was thinking of two in particular. One is the instruction. So when I was reading your book many years ago, I think the first or second time I read it, um, about the relaxed open gaze and the peripheral vision mm. available to the creatures when they're in the expanded awareness of all things mode, if you like the right hemisphere mode. Mm. Now there is a a gaze that we are practicing in general everyday Tai Chi and meditation and the tip of the tongue is just against the top palate and you're mm -hmm. relaxing your eyes and if you look at one thing, if I focus on this fleck on your jumper, the whole world has come in mm -hmm. and I don't have awareness of the peripheral vision and a certain kind of feeling sense takes over the body at first because I'm not particularly anxious just now, a kind of subtle anxiety tightening with this very, very centre of the eye gaze, which mm. notices detail, like mm. when the bird is picking out the seeds, yes, which is a different awareness to when the bird is sensing the whole garden. Mm. When we are in the middle of a fight, in what I practice, if I focus down on the fleck on my opponent's jumper, 
I cannot respond. My mm. body is tight, my mind is tight, my energy, my awareness are tight, mm. and nothing is available to me to flow. And I remember watching um, a great friend, Master Sam Masich, teaching one of his students, and he was demoing, and he kept saying to his student, stop looking at one spot, <laughs> because he needed him to free up his body. Mm. And even though we can go from the awareness side of things, mm. Our tradition is working from the body, but mm. it massively affects the awareness. Mm -hmm. So when we say to a student, relax the gaze, mm -hmm. more awareness of the peripheral vision, mm -hmm. look out roughly towards the horizon, but don't look at anything, yes. just allow a kind of evenness of gaze. Yes. Their shoulders drop, their bellies round out, their breathing softens, and suddenly when you go towards them, <laughs> with a punch. They've already outreached, connected, yielded and dealt with everything without even knowing it. Yes. yes. Because they were in their right mind. Yes, yes. That's very interesting. It reminds me of something I learned from the physician who looks after the um, motorcycle races and the TT races in the Isle of Man. And um, uh, there were a number of observations that were fascinating. This is for those who don't know about the TT races, probably the most dangerous sporting event <laughs> in the world. Um, it takes place on a 62-mile road, which is just an ordinary um, road for most of the year, and it has drain covers and potholes and steep bends and so on. It's not a racetrack. But it's quite common for riders to... Um, approach or even reach speeds of 200 miles an hour. So this is absolutely colossal. And um, there's a grandstand at a certain point on a rise. And this physician said to one of the riders, as you go past the grandstand, you must be positioned so precisely that when you get to the bottom of a steep hill, you can take the, the 90 degrees bend in the right place. If you got it slightly wrong, you you be dead. Um, and then you've got to get yourself over Quarter Bridge, which is some mile along. And the rider said, when I'm going past the grandstand, I'm not thinking about that descent or the bend. I'm already at Quarter Bridge, which is really interesting. So their attention was somewhere else. And it goes with, there are many observations he made, and I have a lot more to say about this in the matter of things. But one of his observations was that their senses are extraordinarily alert, so that um, one of them, for example, describes uh, passing very fast, but being able to smell inside his helmet um, somebody smoking a cigarette in a, in a field. So he's aware of everything, mm. but their eyes appear to be not focused on anything. If you look at them, they appear to be staring somewhere else. Yep. So again, it's this thing of being enormously alert and in the moment, but precisely because of being in the moment, not focused in that narrow way, but somehow allowing it all to come. And when the, another observation he had was that one racer who produced an absolutely record time had um, decided that he, he, he had a problem and he had to pull off and sort it and get back on the road. And he thought, well, that does it. I'm never going to um, do anything on this circuit. So he just, as he thought, took it very easily. And when he got back, he'd actually broken his record and most of everybody else's. But it is very interesting. This stuff. is that relaxation, which is not yes. the flaccid relaxation of like the Western in front of the telly. No. And it's not the, we have pastiches of it in sort of the, the warrior pose, but yes. it's 
there is a way to relax where everything is still in utmost readiness. Yes. And you're re there is no accelerator and brake being pushed at the same time. There's no burning up um, of one's energy. Mm. There is a, there is a, and it doesn't always manifest the same because it's different before you sing on stage as it was before you write a book. But there's still none of them enhanced by being um, tense mm. or anxious. Mm. And a lot of the training of flow of Chisanti Mihaly's flow idea is this relaxation under more and more pressure mm. so that you can maintain that flow state even whilst going at 200 miles an hour on a yes. massive racing bike yes yes but it's it's the same in the heat of a fight and yes. the same in i think in love as it is in war yes it's the yes. presence that makes it absolutely. all possible absolutely they say in the tai chi classics that first you train movement consciously but later that you're using unconscious movement. Yes. And by that they don't mean unconscious, no, no. like the drunkard. Although they have relaxation, they just don't have integrity. <laughs> they softly fall down the stairs. Yes, yes, yes but, uh, I would, I would like to be that soft, but without having to drink the whiskey, because <laughs> the headache afterwards. But I could the, just drink less whiskey. I could just drink less whiskey. That's different. But that's, that's very good, yeah. But that relaxation, Mm. shouldn't really be called relaxation and we don't have the words for no. this correct tone which is why we always talk about tuning the loop yes. string just yes. so or yes. to get just the right tone it's not too loose and not too tight yes and i think that's that's it mm. and i think these motorcyclists describe something which is not not the sort of exhilaration that you might imagine out of you know driving so fast but they're actually suspended somehow mm. as this is going on but in a in a in a in a peaceful conscious yeah. way, take <laughs> two hundred miles per and and they actually have to take bends on which there are stone walls, and if their leathers don't brush the wall, they won't actually make the turn. So it's all micro, not managed, but absolutely not managed. Absolutely. It's micro unmanaged. It's 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 got to be sensed, understood, taken up into what one's doing, but not thought. Thought about. The left hemisphere cannot do that in time. Even if it could do it, no. you can't make a flow chart of that no. because that's not how it's working. No. There's not decisions are not being made. No. That's why when the student says, "I didn't do it," when the student we go, "Yes, that that was the right touch. Mm. That was so soft. I almost fell in." And they go, "I wasn't doing anything." Yeah. What people think they are is often that list making. That's the yes. mind that they are associated yes. with. Yes. And yes. what I think your work and bizarrely what my work is asking people <laughs> to do is to loosen the grip of association on that one thing, which I wouldn't call necessarily a personality, but a way in which yes. that tight managerial mind yes. on the living body and the living well, soul. Essential that one's got to allow that, but not just, I think, wonderful as Tai Chi is as an exercise in doing this, but mm. it needs to be carried over into the way we lead our lives. It has to. And that, which is great to have the dinging clock, that's what your <laughs> yes. book did to our schools and to the and to the wider community that it went out into mm. because obviously there was a wonderful people in the schools like Marcel Theroux and Michael, Dr. Michael Parsons like passing on the book. It started to go from hand to hand into many kind of uh, wider philosophical communities and other Taoists and for us it was a pathway, I mean, Tai Chi changed a lot of our ordinary lives too, I'd say at least half the people who stay in it find it transforms relationships and I, so I'm on. I'm sure. But then 
you provided us with the philosophical wording and framework to be able to talk about it with people outside our mm. family of moving people because not everybody has stood for 15 years in a room being pushed <laughs> so it was helpful thank you <laughs> to, to be able to say these things exist elsewhere mm. and if you profoundly change your way of being it can have massive beneficial effects and they ripple outward it's the way of being the way of attending that seems to be the trick. And it just occurred to me, uh, which I'd never thought before, that perhaps the, the explanations, the accounts that I give in my work are also, in essence, the meat that is tossed to the dog. And that people actually take away, not just that, but that knowledge that they now understand or have words for something that they probably already intuitively knew, allows them to, frees them to access it. Yeah. Not just through sort of application of things that they read, but, but it sort of is already releasing something. Because you said, half of the people who do the Tai Chi tell you that it's improved their lives, at least half. And um, in a way I could say that I receive so many messages from people who say, you know, your book has changed my life, but more specifically, it's changed, changed my relationships, it's changed my marriage, it's changed my, my work. You know? and it's not presumably because they took away something and practiced it. It's because that having seen something which is accessible to their mind now because it's it's, it's it's explained in a way that 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 circumvents the gatekeeper of the left hemisphere and says no, but this actually goes deep and shows how the right hemisphere is really the one that's doing the hard work here. And that they can then joyfully enter into that kind of a life and that kind of a disposition Absolutely. that they were alienated from by by indoctrination in this culture that we have, which is which is this. But what I mean specifically by that is the reductionist materialist um, vision of the world, which I think is leading us to destruction in so many ways. It's, it's helping us famously to destroy the planet. I think it's now helping us to destroy society. Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad that you didn't call your book, McGilchrist says you're doing it wrong, do this. <laughs> and because you didn't have a didactic title or method, mm. you slipped things under people's radars. So it's like cooking in the in the transition. Yes. You, you're just cutting up an ox, <laughs> yes. not blunting your blaze. And, yeah. you know, um, and someone who notices that, the king comes across and says, oh, this is the refinement of skill, this is the epitome of skill. And you kind of go, you go and do your talks, like this one, and you say, yes, and this is this. And meanwhile, pointing to all the things that it isn't, that's not what you're doing. Yeah. So I would venture to say that you've done the non-doing of showing people what non-doing is. Yes. Well, of course, according to my own philosophy, there ought to be a, a union of doing and non-doing, which is we don't want just non-doing if that means not doing anything. Yeah. We don't want just doing if that's the usual drive to achieve something linearly. But we need this further synthesis of doing. We need both of them. So you cannot have Wu Wei, you cannot have non-doing without doing, and it has to start yes, with doing. that's and interesting. There's yeah. a very... Um, interesting chap in Canada uh, who is translating lots of classics. I don't read the Chinese, so reading the Taoist classics in these sensitive translations at the moment is 
very interesting. Mm. And first you need, um, it's a bit like that phrase they asked for the Dao, uh, for a Taoist master who would go into the hills to avoid the trouble, yeah. but first to have a foothold in the world. So yes. there was, um, there's a great writer I love, Liu Ming, from about the 1600s, who had nothing but scorn for the for the man who would leave his family and go and do his Taoism in the hills. Yeah. There's, there are things that must be attended to. Mm. So to clothe yourself, to feed yourself, to have mm. a safe place to lay your head, to mm. take account of and take care of what you are responsible for. Mm -hmm. and. And a lot of the writing that I love is also applicable to statecraft, which couldn't be further from my life than anything. No, no, no. But the context of it is the same. There are things we must do, mm -hmm. and they should be done. It's interesting to use the word should, but they should be done. Mm -hmm. But there is then... Well, it is good that they should be done. It is good that yeah. they should be done, or every, nothing, mm -hmm. and then there is just chaos, mm -hmm. uh, because things have been left undone. Mm -hmm. And then you have to rush to get things made back up to okay. Yes, yes. There is a timeliness to non-doing. Mm. In fact, non-doing is often doing, another good description of it would be uh, uncontrived action, yes. which I really like, which is Marx, Very my teacher's good. one. And yes. I like also um, doing just enough. Yes, yes. And then timely action and yes. uh, no more than is needed. Yes. And that begins to have that kind of, what's the yes. Swedish for that? The lagum, the just, yes. you know, just enough. Yes, such an important point because that that's a missing from our culture is that there is always a, such a thing as that's enough mm. uh, of anything you consider good or whatever that you start to go into the downward part of the curve if you keep pushing and that's in the I Ching it says the man who keeps pushing onwards without realizing what he's doing and goes beyond the point where things are good and starts to lose whatever it is. So I think that's important. And I was thinking of a phrase I sometimes use, not perhaps very um, felicitous, but I talk about active passivity, because uh, otherwise people misunderstand passivity. It sounds mm. bad as a negation. But as always, I say there's nothing negative about inhibition and negation. Often no. they are actually creative processes. And also how the mind works. It's yes. just saying no or not saying so no. no yes. Which is exactly the same as Tai Chi. You either allow yes. or uh, you allow the other person. We can't block. Yes. I, I'm yes. a small woman. I will be pushed over. Yes. So you, you say no or you, you don't say, say no. no. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, that's that's great and that's also part of my philosophy so there are a lot of a lot of resonances there it's, it's wonderful it is amusing that from such different life ways mm. yours and mine that we would come to an accord about the the, the matter of the matter of things the small matter of how the universe is <laughs> but it feels like a like a generative conversation that's been going on i don't mm. know yes yeah, since i wrote my your book changed my life letter. Mm. What was that like? Twelve years ago, something mm. like that. Probably yes. Possibly more. Yes, yes. But wow. it, it hasn't stopped doing that, and now that I have this um, time finally to look into the Taoist alchemical terms and refer them back to mm. the terminology that you've had and the things mm. that you're pointing to in your earlier book. I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you when I have actually written it all down about true lead and true mercury, about the, the essence of conscious thought, mm. that way of using the bright mind 
that is, if you like, the left hemisphere of the kind of the possibility of organising everything, but yet not filling it. It's yes. like having a wonderful library and the computer set up and all the books in the right place, but yet the moment before you start where all the thoughts are still just there, ready to crystallise, that's the, the feeling of that. Mm. And then also the, the real sense of true knowledge, which is true led, which mm. is in the body and mm. is maybe perhaps more of a, a right hemisphere way of engaging with all things, mm. has no words with it, yes. but is fully connected. Mm. Obviously we cannot work without both. What I like particularly is that you're talking about something that is very skillful, that you've been practicing for decades, and that has to be painfully, or not painfully, but slowly acquired by anyone who wishes to practice it. And it's something very subtle, and it can be expressed in terms that make it sound easy, like <laughs> you just move and you just flow. Oh, and yes. And one of the things I really want to get, um, there are so many misconceptions about hemisphere differences but one is that the right hemisphere is this sort of let it all hang out hemisphere and it absolutely isn't it's in fact not only emotionally far more intelligent than the left hemisphere but perhaps for that very reason it is also the center of emotional necessary emotional restraint mm. and a degree of emotional inhibition where required where appropriate and so it, it, it it, it exercises a kind of wise restraint a great deal of the time, which is where all these un-words come into the picture. But this is not a simple matter, and it is not a matter of laxity. And sometimes, I, 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 when I talk to people about education, one of the things I have to sort of get across to people is that I'm not an advocate of education becoming sloppy mm. and just allowing children to do whatever they want and comes into their heads. That's a, a complete dereliction of our duty to, to help them learn to, to shape them into all these, these skills that they won't just get by doing nothing, mm. they get by doing something to begin with, which is entering into the relationship with the teacher. And I think that the idea of teaching as a relationship is another thing that's very, very important. It's very obvious in what you've just described. But too often people think of teaching as a whole, in, for example, a classroom, as being a one-way process. And what I'm not saying is some trendy thing that the children can teach the teacher more than the teacher can teach the, the child. I don't believe that. I think there are things that teachers do learn all the time from the responses of their children, but that's not the same thing. The relationship, like the relationship between right and left hemispheres, is not necessarily an equal one. Mm. And at that stage in life, it's very important that children actually do pay attention, learn self-discipline, learn how to ingest information, which at the time they may... They may find fascinating, but they may not see now why this is going to liberate them later to be truly creative. You can only be the creative person when you have had a, a period of strict discipline. Mm. And I suspect that this is true of Oriental um, meditative arts, um, spiritual practices, including the, the martial practices mm. that you're talking about, that there needs to be a period of, of great self-denial, of great... Um, intensity of labour and then one is free yes. to allow things to, one becomes that that pathway through which the, the, I love this expression of Rumi that we are the we are the flute through which the breath of Christ is passed which is a really interesting idea. It's fantastic and that brings us back to containers because mm. there's there's two senses in which 
learning for me is a sacred container. One, I was unlucky enough to be born in the culture I was in as it fell apart and do not feel necessarily, I had some great teachers at school, but do not feel that my culture gave me a form, it was a good vessel for me to shape whatever amorphous liquid this is that we can refer to as Caroline today. But I was lucky enough to walk into a garden in South London and find Mark's Tai Chi class after I'd broken my back and through not taking care of my body, my disc herniated and I was becoming paralysed. So on my wedding day I was uh, becoming paralysed and ended up in Atkinson Morley having my disc removed. But anyway, wow. that was a long story that I didn't need to tell. So I finally tried to, tried to find a Tai Chi class because I hadn't done it for about 15 years. Mm. And I walked into the South London garden and there was Mark teaching. Uh, and I already knew I was in the right place. I mean, mm. it talked about Temenos, it was a walled garden. And mm. there were all these people of different races, heights, sexes, uh, all the different, everybody just quietly getting on. So all these adults touching each other in an appropriate and mystifying way that I hadn't seen since I was a kid when I first did Tai Chi. And I already knew, I, I need to be here. I hope that what they're doing is good. So then after a few hours, feeling that, ah, this is a container fit for all things. And when you find your area of study, it doesn't have to just be one thing, because I felt the same, I feel the same about art, yeah. and I felt the same about music, yeah. and I really feel the same about relationship, filia, yeah. fil yeah, friendship and yes, family. Yes. There are these handful in my life of containers yeah. which are fit for whatever I pour in them. Whatever yeah. comes, you can form it. And I feel that Taiji is one of those ones where all the things could be looked at. Um, but I don't feel that that's necessarily happening for people. So I would hope that education brings you mm. a vessel mm. and a shaping. Mm. And if, you, if you're lucky enough to get that, which I think you did, and I think I did in Tai Chi, then great. But if everything is just amorphous mm. and there's no discipline and nothing, mm. you don't have anything to, to, to sort of play against. Mm. I was a goth mm. and I hated mainstream culture, mm. but I needed mainstream culture yes. to bounce off. Of course. It's that point I make about resistance, how incredibly important it is and creative it is. Uh, just uh, having no boundaries and no resistance is, is not a creative or happy state of affairs. No. The strictures that I love in, I use just these na few natural materials for my art, mm. are similar to the fact that in, in art I we're only allowed to be upright almost mm. all the time. Mm. And if I'm leaning and shoving and pushing, then, mm. then it's not, even if I'm winning, it's mm. wrong. Oh. And it's, uh, the principles have been lost. Mm. So, yeah, I don't fight against having constraint. For me, that has been mm. a joy. So I agree. Mm. Resistance is fertile, it is not so, futile. so fertile, <laughs> yeah. not futile, as you say. But it's yeah. good after all these years to say something and mm. to speak. Mm. Yeah. That's been, been Thank lovely. You Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Ian. Mm.